You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. We're returning to the German election to decide the shape of the first German government in the post-Merkel era. Our Europe editor Tony Connolly joins us again to update us on the results and the likely makeup of a future coalition. And I'm also joined by Ulrike Franke, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And good morning to you both. And Tony, just remind us again, will you, of those knife-edge results and the shape of Germany's the likely shape of Germany's next government. Yes, Mary. Well, the the latest official provisional result uh, is still that this uh, SPD, the Social Democrats, are at 25.7% and the CDU, Christian Democrats, and their sister party, the CSU, are at 24.1%. Uh, so what we're getting this morning already in some of the early morning TV uh, news channels uh, some shots across the bows between different parties as to who should be getting together to form a coalition. Um, Norbert Rotgen, who is the influential chair of the Bundestag Foreign Affairs Committee on the CDU side, saying that the party risks no longer being the People's Party because of last night's result. So there's a lot of licking of wounds for, from the CDU perspective at the moment. But he said that they didn't have uh, a a claim to form a coalition, but that didn't mean that they couldn't still go ahead to form a coalition. But clearly on the other side of the divide, some sniping from the SPD saying that there's no way that the Green Party would prop up the CDU in a coalition, given that the people appear to have rejected the CDU uh, as as the main party. So we're waiting to hear from the two big parties officially what their positions are going to be. There'll be a statement from both parties this morning and then news conferences conferences later. Um, But all the indications are now that the SPD are in pole position to start those coalition talks. And the Greens, major kingmakers here in in a future coalition arrangement and eager to get into government. Yes, the Greens have done very well. They've nearly doubled their votes since 2017 and really captured a mood in the country that is very concerned about climate change, how to pay for climate change. Uh, And notable as well, I think, that the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, the FDP, they have really commanded the young vote in Germany. And I think that is why this is being seen as such a watershed election because of the the demographic trends and the allegiances towards the big two parties that have dominated. Those allegiances are weakening and fragmenting. Uh, and so that's why this is an indication of the shape of things to come. I think in Germany, those two parties, the Greens and the FDP, really counting among young voters, uh, and they will obviously be staking a claim to have a place in, in the new coalition. Ulrike Franke, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, is with us as well. Ulrike, what do you believe is the signal here from German voters? Mm. Um, I think there are actually several signals, and this is what makes this uh, rather difficult. So on the one hand, there is a signal that a lot of voters want change. Um, and I would say that's the votes for the Greens and the FDP, which both have gained quite a lot. But at the same time, Germans and German voters tend to be quite status quo uh, aficionados. And I would actually read the the votes for the SPD a bit counterintuitively as 
votes for continuity. I mean, Olaf Scholz, the SPD candidate, basically ran saying, you know, I'm I'm your your female chancellor. I'm your next Angela Merkel. And so I think he stood more for continuity than than some outsiders uh, may see. So there are a few mixed messages. But I agree with the with the commentator just now that um, most Germans seem to want a change, at least when it comes to who leads the, the governing coalition. And so we are likely to see an SPD coalition rather than a CDU-led government. So a steady hand, and you think for Germans it was important that uh, Mr. Schulz was already vice-chancellor and and finance minister and had experience at government level? Yeah, I actually, I, I believe that that's important and I believe that's one of the reasons why the Greens, which for example, in May, actually, we're, we're coming out first in the polls, ended up not doing so well because their candidate was um, very young and very unexperienced. And, and people, I think, felt that she may not be ready for this, you know, pretty big office of German chancellor. So Olaf Scholz definitely also could could just, um, yeah, benefited from the, the fact that he was indeed a minister before he was in government before and just seemed like a pretty steady hand, uh, not just in Germany, but also internationally and and in the EU. Tony, a a steady hand with new blood. What will it mean, though, uh, if this is the composition we're looking at with uh, Mr. Schulz as Chancellor? uh, What will it mean for the direction that Germany takes at a European level? Well, I think there will be continuity on on the European level. I mean, all the parties uh, that have done well are uh, pro-European Union, they're pro-integration. Um, the Greens in particular are w- will bring a, an influence to bear on, on European foreign and German foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they may make a pitch to, to get the foreign minister's job. Joska Fischer, remember, was a Green Party member uh, back in the early 2000s during, during the Iraq war. Um, and, and the Greens are quite robust on on human rights they would take a strong position towards russia and china um the the other big question will be european fiscal policy there is going to be a debate very soon on whether or not to overhaul the fiscal rules the the deficit rules and the debt rules that govern the eurozone those rules have been largely suspended during the pandemic and before they're simply reimposed uh, or put back in place that there is going to be a debate as to whether or not they should be reformed should spending on green technology be uh, exempt from those kind of fiscal rules so so that so that the new german government is going to have a very big role to play and how that debate is shaped and if you've got a green party in there uh, th- that that could influence it at the same time the fdp the liberal democrats are still fairly keen on the constitutional debt break in Germany. They, they and they also want tax cuts, as well. So there, there is going to be a lot of difficult negotiation for all three parties, no doubt, in the coming months. But broadly speaking, I think you'll get continuity in terms of the overall European picture. To stay with, with that issue, Ulrika, of, of Germany's role within Europe, you know, if 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 Macron is seen as the the visionary within the EU. Uh, what what is the German role? Is it, is it the pragmatist? <laughs> I think the German role over the last few years and decades uh, under Angela Merkel, but but I think this is a more general position as well, has been one of a, of a unifying force. So Germany and, and Angela Merkel in particular. 
definitely saw their role as trying to keep the EU and EU27 together, trying to have everyone heard, including the small member states. And um, here they were a little bit, I want to say, in opposition to Macron, who has been championing this idea of, of the avant-garde, right, working with those willing and able and, well, potentially leaving the others a, a, a little bit behind. And, and Germany always tried to have everyone on board, which I think is something that, that's been recognized by, by Europeans, by the smaller Europeans. Now, you know, don't get me wrong, there were, of course, issues such as Nord Stream 2 and Germany's um, uh, behavior during the migration crisis. But overall, I still think that there there has been this unifying approach within the EU. And this, in in fact, I think will be the, the big challenge now for the next chancellor and for the next government. Because if this new government really wants to lead in any kind of way in the EU, it may actually have to abandon this unifying stance which made it important and which make, made a Europeans say that, that Germany should indeed lead the EU. But if you want to lead, you, you need a few more visions and you need to be willing to say, you know what, we're not just going to go for the lowest common denominator. And I think this is really the big challenge, how to, how to do this, how to keep the EU27 together while moving forward while doing reforms and as we just heard indeed the greens and the fdp i think they have some ideas on on eu foreign policy but in if you want to do that that may mean well you know having a bit more um disagreements within the eu and that's something so far germany hasn't really been comfortable with so that's something i'm looking at quite closely coming back tony again to the analysis of the election and its outcome and you know whatever about the shape of, of the future coalition does this result tell us that moderate centrism has prevailed here uh, and perhaps not the, the, the rise of populism that we've seen in other European countries? Yes, well, I mean, the, I suppose the the real master stroke that Angela Merkel had was, was the ability to uh, move the party to the centre and to appeal to SPD and Green voters with key signature policies. Um, so that was recognition that there is still a very important centre in German politics and I think that centre has held on this occasion. The left party got 4.9%, that's a radical left party, may not even make it into the uh, Bundestag. The AFD uh, got uh, around 11%, that's the alternative for Deutschland, a, a radical right-wing party. Um, they still are doing very well in East Germany. They're the biggest party in two East German states, but they haven't uh, made that big breakthrough uh, that was expected a few years ago. Uh, so this has been a bad election for those fringe parties. And uh, yes, of course, the CDU and the SPD are still the two biggest parties, but they you know, they have lost their a lot of their core support uh, over the past 10, 15 years. Um, and you have parties like the FDP and the Greens coming in to fill that space. Uh, but it is still a largely centrist, uh, moderate space within the, the spectrum. Uh, Ulrika, future for, for Angela Merkel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, um, I think we heard one of uh, a, a former uh, Taoiseach, a former prime minister here saying uh, that she said herself, I think, she, that she would do nothing for a while. But uh, do you see her taking on any future role within Europe, within the European structure? Ah, that's a very good question. So I, I must say, I am pretty sure that now she really 
will retreat. Um, she will go to her dacha. She will cook potato soup, which um, uh, reportedly is her favorite food. And she really may do nothing for a while. I think that is very likely. Will she seek another position? I don't know, in the, in the UN or NATO or anything like this. I don't quite see it right now, but it is true that she really has been seen as this kind of leader of the free world or, or something like this over the last few years. And I think in the end, it may depend on circumstances, on events. If she feels like she's needed, which I think was the case, you know, four years ago, where I think she didn't quite want to run again. But then, you know, we had Donald Trump and all of this and she kind of feel, felt like she was needed, which I think was correct. If a similar situation arises, maybe she'll come back but I think for now we may actually not hear from her for quite a while and I don't expect her to be sitting in German talk shows and like commenting on on um, current affairs I think you know she yeah she, she'll, she'll take a break maybe she'll do a kind of um, lecture post somewhere at the university but but uh, yeah I think for now um, a lot of quiet around Merkel. she'll be a caretaker chancellor for a little <laughs> while yet Ulrika that is Franke. of course true Thank you yeah. very much indeed for your time this morning and our Europe editor Tony Connolly. More reports from Tony throughout the day. Now, the HSE is beginning administering third shots of COVID-19 vaccine to the immunocompromised whose bodies haven't developed enough resistance from the usual two shots. And booster shots will be offered to the over 80s and over 65s in residential settings from next week. Martin Cormican, the HSE lead for infection control, can tell us more. Good morning to you, Martin Cormican. Good morning. Uh, so, first of all, this difference between third shots and boosters and who's getting what? Okay, and perhaps just before I come to that, to say that um, you don't need to contact anyone if you wonder if you're due for an extra dose. The HSE will contact you. And also just to reassure people that there is no shortage of vaccine. Now, we have very good vaccine supplies. Um, and, may, and just to say that, if you haven't been vaccinated to date and you'd like, you've changed your mind, you'd like to get vaccinated, the door is absolutely open. We'd be delighted to see you um, and, and please register if you've changed your mind and you would like to get the vaccine for the first time. But for anyone who is vaccinated um, and who needs an additional dose, we will be in touch with you. So the difference between the two things that are happening now, I suppose it's useful maybe to think that uh, getting the vaccination is a bit like getting your immune system ready for a big match against the virus. Most of us have our immune team is, is good for action after the standard vaccine dose. Um, for some people whose immune system is starting from a lower base, it's weaker, they need an extra training session, an extra vaccine dose to get them ready for that match if they meet the virus. And that's what the booster dose is about. Or that's what they, I beg your pardon, that's what the mm. uh, additional dose is about for the immunocompromised. It's getting them ready for, for for that if they meet the virus. The other part of what's happening at the moment then is is people who were match ready um, six months ago, um, but their, their immune system has gotten a bit out of condition over the last six months and another training session brings them back up to match ready. So th that's the two things that are happening. One is getting people whose immune system was starting from a weak base, getting that match ready. And that means the extra vaccine dose is given two months at least after they, they had their standard course. And then the other thing that we're doing is people who, who were ready, 
but their immune system has gotten a bit out of condition and that's a six-month interval to get them back up to where they were. All right. In terms of the um, immunocompromised, what age groups and what medical conditions will be covered, will be contacted? So for immunocompromised, um, it's um, everybody over the age of 12 who is immunocompromised will be contacted. But in the first instance, we'll be contacting people who are 16 and over. Um, There'll be a little delay for people who are 12 and 15. That's because in many cases, they haven't reached the two-month interval yet because they were vaccinated later. So everybody over 12 will be contacted at the right time. Um, But people who are 12 to 15, there will be a bit of delay just to allow that two months to go past. And And the reason for that is that's where you get the most benefit if you've allowed that interval of two of two months to go by. And then the other groups we will be um, vaccinating are people who are 80 years and older um, will be um, offered at the booster dose um, and that is whether they live in a, in their homes or if they live in nursing home. If you're, People who are 80 and older will be offered that booster dose. And then people who are 65 and older and who live in nursing homes or other residential facilities, they will also be offered the the booster and again people don't need to worry about doing anything today they don't need to call they don't need to call anyone um we're working uh, to contact you we we are anxious to contact you as quickly as we can um and uh, and we will reach you and as i said there is a very good supply of vaccine in the country now so we do have enough vaccine for everyone and will this be administered by gps or through vaccination centers or will it depend on um the setting it depends on the setting indeed. Right. Um, so people who are immune compromised, um, the, uh, we're working to identify the, the people who, who meet that definition. Um, they will be contacted and they will be offered a vaccine uh, dose mainly in the vaccination centres, would be mainly for that group. For people who are 80 years and, and older, they will be mainly offered the vaccination by their general practitioner, although in some cases people might be referred to the vaccination centres. And then for people in residential care, nursing homes and other settings, uh, the vaccination teams will come to mm-hmm. them where they where they live. And of course, uh, we're getting into flu jab season now. The importance of that this year and how are you fixed in terms of supplies? Yes, so the so the flu uh, situation is, uh, as you say, we do need to be careful. That it does look likely, from what we're hearing from around the world, that the flu will be around this year. So it is really important for people um, to get the flu vaccine. The pathways for getting the vaccine for flu would be very similar to previous years, and we do have good vaccine supplies. So anyone uh, who's interested should check in with their local chemist or doctor. Yeah, so the flu vaccine will be mainly given through general practitioners and, and, and pharmacies um, as in previous uh, years. Uh, so it would be very similar to how people access the flu vaccine uh, last year and previous And as years, all of so. this is going on, and I presume uh, Paul Reid told us last week, he estimated it would take uh, five to six weeks to get through the programme uh, in terms of the third COVID shots uh, and also the boosters that you give into certain categories of elderly. Um, but you're also, uh, the Taoiseach has certainly spoken in principle about his uh, being in favour in principle of vaccinating children there's no recommendation on that yet but vaccinating children indeed extending the groups of people who may be considered for third shots that's all likely to be on your agenda this winter? So the National National Immunisation Advisory Committee uh, continually review the evidence of who 
may benefit from from vaccination. Um, and the HSE is guided by the advice of the mm-hmm. National Immunisation Advisory Committee. So at the moment, we're moving to implement the, the, the latest recommendations on that. Um, and certainly any additional recommendations that come from, from NIAC, the Immunisation Advisory Committee, uh, the HSE will move to implement those as quickly as possible. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us this morning from our Galway studio. That's Professor Martin Cormican, the HSE Lead for Infection Control. Airgrid has warned that unless action is taken, Ireland could face a shortfall of electricity supply over the next five winters. The warning is contained in a key report by the state-owned company which operates the national grid. In response, the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities has ordered several measures to boost supply, including temporary generators and keeping older power plants open. Commissioner Jim Gannon from that commission is here. Uh, Jim Gannon, good morning. Thanks for coming in to us today. Good morning, Gavin. Thank you. Why are are we running out of electricity? So I suppose what Airgood have identified in their most recent generation capacity statement is an additional capacity need in the coming years. There's two key reasons for this. First off is a continued rapid growth in demand. And in fact, we saw record demand in the winter of this year, just gone, which surpassed that very cold winter of 2010 and 2011. And secondly, new generating capacity isn't coming to the market as quickly as we would like to both satisfy that demand and then also to replace the older parts of the fleet that would naturally retire. So what we've published in the information note is very quickly a work programme with a number of different pillars that will address this shortfall in the coming years as we get that enduring gas plant in place, including facilitating air and bringing in temporary generation, retaining access to some older generators and working on demand side measures to reduce our needs at times of scarcity and putting in some contingency measures as well to add some comfort to that. But again, okay. this is temporarily just until we get that enduring gas capacity in place that will partner wind to help us reach our 2030 targets. We'll get to those measures in just a moment. Sure. We've had eight amber alerts since January. Will there be blackouts this winter? At the moment, the two major gas plants that were on prolonged outages that added significant risk to this winter are both scheduled to come back in October and November. So it's anticipated that although things will remain tight this winter and we may have some amber alerts, that it will be manageable. So challenging but manageable. Will Money Point and Tarbert power plants, which burn coal and oil respectively, will they need to stay open for longer now? So this is part of the plan. So in the GCS published by Airgrid, they have noted some significant plants that will close in the coming number of years. And they would include Tarbert and Money Point and also Ahada and Eden Derry, for example. So for us, um, as new capacity is taking a little bit longer to come to the system, as, as some capacity we expected to come in has not come in, we need to retain the ability to access these plants when we need them. And importantly, just the way the market would look to these plants is the market tends to go for renewables first and then after that it would reach for the less carbon intensive and more efficient plants that are more cost effective. So by the time the market generally reaches for oil fired and coal fired plant it has exhausted the renewable and the lower carbon units out there. So it's not it's not that these would be brought on to be the mainstays of the system, it's that they would be there for when the market needs them. But will they need to stay open for longer now? So that, that is the dialogue that Airgrid are entering into with these plants with our support. Is that not your recommendation? It is certainly our recommendation without question. How much longer will they need to stay open for? So at the moment it is to cover a bridging period of perhaps two to three years depending on the plant until that new enduring capacity comes into place. So we're putting in these 
variety, this variety of measures to make sure that that bridging yes. period is covered. What does that but mean? Are we talking 2025 or longer? It is, it is out to 2025, perhaps 2026 for some of the measures. And then, as I said, as soon as that enduring capacity comes into place, we immediately start retiring those measures. Airgrids say that around 500 megawatts of contracted generation expected to be delivered next winter will not now be delivered. Why not? That's right. So I think one of the challenges that we've had over the past while has been delays to the delivery and also drop out to the delivery of certain plants that we would have hoped and would have expected to come to the system. And there have been a variety of reasons cited by the different developers, including some who would have spoken to statutory processes taking a bit longer, some who would have spoken to delays and challenges with regard to equipment supply and um, contracting with uh, engine manufacturers, let's say, and other general delays to processes and projects which would have them short on meeting deadlines. So one of the things that we have done over the past number of months is to address some of these risks. So specifically, you would have seen ourselves issuing directions to the system operators to prioritise electricity grid connections to new generation facilities and also with Gas Networks Ireland a direction to complete some anticipatory investment in the knowledge that some of these facilities will come to market. And then finally in terms of the market we're working with our partners in the Single Electricity Market Committee to look at how we send those signals around the real volume that we need so that market knows there's an appetite there for these facilities and then also the parameters in those auctions to make sure that we get a good number of generators into the next two capacity okay. auctions in quarter of next year and then they're deliverable and deliverable on time. More oil, more gas, more coal being used than perhaps anticipated. How will people who pay for electricity be affected? Will they have to pay more? So I think at, at the moment what we've done is we've put together a suite of measures which addresses our key obligation right now, which is to make sure that when someone reaches for that electricity switch that there is electricity there. Um, the measures that we've outlined will largely be delivered through either competitive markets or through competitive processes to make sure that whatever needs to be put in place is put in place in a competitive way and we get the best price there for consumers. Will they have to pay more? Uh, it's anticipated that yes, they may have to pay more. Airgrid has identified data centres, and we'll be talking about these in a few moments, as Mm. the primary factor behind growing demand. Is there a limit on the number of data centres that that can be connected to the grid? So at the moment, Airgrid would outline a 10-year period of demand growth that then needs to be addressed by generating capacity. And what we're seeing in this plan is us creating enough generation and making sure that we have the generation to satisfy that capacity. I think in terms of data centres, it's well known at this stage that Airgrid project that they won't just be a large part of our demand, but the largest part of our demand growth over the coming decade. And I think for our part in the Commission, uh, we recently closed a consultation that we're now bringing towards a final decision at the end of October, where we look at the connection options for data centres. And what we've done there is effectively noted that they bring this pressure to the system. And we've invited the data centre community to look at different options that they can bring to the table. And this would include, very quickly, um, you know, demand-side measures where they would turn down at times of peak capacity or scarcity of supply. It would also look at batteries on site, perhaps, and we know that certain data centre operators are already looking at these where they could use excess okay. wind. And then finally, also look at on-site generation. And again, some developers of data centres are looking at on-site gas generation that can then be converted to hydrogen in line with decarbonisation. Jim Gannon from the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities. Thank you for speaking to us. 
Lava from the erupting volcano in the Canary Islands has reached the ocean. It raises fears of toxic gases being released as the lava hits the seawater. Hundreds of homes have been destroyed since the volcano erupted on the 19th of September. We can talk now to journalist Kleena O'Flynn, who is in Tenerife. Uh, Kleena, good morning. Can you tell us what's been happening uh, on La Palma uh, in, in recent hours in relation to this volcano? Right. The the expected, anticipated and somewhat feared arrival of cubic metres of lava, millions of cubic metres of lava to the sea finally happened just after 11 o'clock last night. So the, as you say, the volcano erupted 10 days ago and one of the ongoing concerns has been what would happen if the lava reached the sea. Uh, the lava flow was fast and it slowed down. The, the scientists weren't sure whether it would actually finally reach the sea, but it finally did last night into a beach called Los Guiris. Uh, and it has been falling. 50 metres of lava have already been registered as having fallen into the sea on quite a shallow platform. So we're looking to see what's going to happen next. Now, there have been worries about immediate clouds of sodium chloride, which would be very, very dangerous for the immediate population. Um, there doesn't seem to have been a high alert issued as yet by the Canarian government and the emergency services. They're keeping an extremely watchful eye on this, as okay. you can imagine. And anyone who lives in a 3.5 kilometre distance of the volcano and particularly of this beach area, if they haven't been evacuated, they are now in a, a, a lockdown, so to speak. OK, and the fear here is that when the lava hits the seawater, that it will create a toxic vapour which will yeah. spread. Then how wide potentially could that spread? <laughs> I mean, I'm afraid that is the how long is a piece of string question at the moment, because nothing that has been predicted for this lava flow so far has gone totally according to plan. There are no alerts as yet for for danger or for precautions in the other Canary Islands. Obviously, weather conditions will be hugely important in terms of this. We do know that early this morning, the wind was blowing the the clouds from the arrival of the lava into the sea back onto the La Palma coastline where it had come from. So at the moment, we're still pretty much relaxed on the other Canary Islands. Obviously, we're looking at our neighbours with sorrow, with fear. But for now, there doesn't seem to be any imminent danger to human life. However, one thing that has kind of emerged in the headlines again is the one person who died in the 1975 eruption in La Palma as well was somebody who inhaled toxic fumes from these uh, from this particular episode when the lava falls into the sea. This is something that will be invisible. Lava dust particles can be very, very small. Anybody who lives even near the volcanic area, if they're leaving their homes, they don't just need to wear a mask. They need to wear goggles. They should wear glasses, mm. not contact lenses. Wear long sleeve clothing because the dust particles can irritate eyes, ears, but also your skin, your mouth. So this is a precautionary move that is being asked to be taken by the people in the immediate vicinity. But for now, the rest of us in the other Canary Islands can only look on in horror. All right, Cleena O'Flynn, thank you very much indeed for bringing us those details. Cleena O'Flynn, who is in Tenerife. A senior retired Garda has been arrested on suspicion of passing information to a major drugs gang during an operation which saw the seizure of €600,000 worth of cannabis. Conor Gallagher is the Irish Times correspondent, crime correspondent. He can tell us uh, what more is known, Conor, about the retired Garda and this arrest. Well, 
This was an extensive operation targeting, as you said, a, a significant uh, criminal gang operating in the North Dublin uh, city uh, area. Five premises were searched, um, uh, which sought a seizure of uh, €600,000 worth of cannabis and €47,000 uh, in cash. But those seizures were almost incidental to the main focus of the investigation, which was establishing if Gardaí or retired Gardaí were aiding in the activities of of this gang in some way. So during yesterday's operation, uh, which spanned five five premises, a single person was arrested. Um, this is a retired senior uh, Garda, aged in his 60s. He uh, retired several years ago, would have been very highly respected within the force uh, and, and left the force on, on, on good terms. He's suspected of providing uh, information to the gang. And this is an offence under Section 72 of the Criminal Justice Act uh, 2006, which you might remember is a raft of criminal justice legislation brought in to ta tackle organised crime activity. Uh, and that makes it an offence to to uh, enhance the ability of a criminal organisation to, to commit a, a specific crime. In this case, that, that the suspicion is that it's taken the form of passing on sensitive Garda information to the gang to, to allow them to commit a specific crime. It's a very serious offence, carries a maximum of five years in prison, uh, and actually the, 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 the suspect can be held for up to seven days uh, 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 for questioning. So he's in been held in Irishtown Garda Station for questioning following his arrest yesterday. Um, that question is expected to go on for uh, quite quite a while. Um, is it anticipated? Also, sorry, Connor. Is it is it anticipated that there could be other arrests of members of the force, retired or otherwise? Yes, I, as I understand, this is no, by no means the, the end of the uh, investigation. It's a very wide-ranging investigation um, being carried out by the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation. And, and you hear about the, the MBCI uh, whenever there is an investigation concerning a Garda or, or a retired Garda. They're the, the people uh, brought in and they specialise kind of in, um, in, 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 in internal criminal corruption. Um, and they've been using several operations uh, in recent years against uh, Garda who are suspected of, of corruption. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm told that there more arrests uh, are expected over the coming weeks and months. Um, um, this is only the beginning of the, the operation. All right. And, uh, yeah. Connor Gallagher, Irish Times crime correspondent. Thank you. Now, later today, a 96-year-old woman will go on trial in Germany. Ermgard Fortner is accused of being a secretary at the Stutthof concentration camp in Poland when she was a teenager. And one man who'll be watching this trial closely is Efraim Zorov. He's a man who's been hunting former Nazis for more than 40 years, and he's the director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center's Israel office, who joins us now from Jerusalem. Mr. Zorov, good morning to you. Good morning. You'll be watching this trial closely. Why? What is the importance of a 96-year-old woman going on trial, um, accused of complicity in the murder of nearly 12,000 people because she was a secretary when she was a teenager? Well, I think it's important to remember several principles. One is that the passage of time in no way diminishes the guilt of the criminals. 
and old age should not afford protection to people uh, who committed such heinous crimes. Just because someone reached the age of 96 doesn't turn a participant, a perpetrator, into a righteous Gentile, as you can imagine. And this, I think, is something very important also for the families of the victims and for the victims themselves. And uh, it sends a message that if you commit such crimes, even many years later, you might be held accountable. And that's an important message in our world today. And I would also add that these are the last people on earth who deserve any sympathy because they had absolutely none for their victims, some of whom were actually older than they are today. So these trials also provide information, enlighten the public, teach them about what actually happened in a camp like Stutov, which is not that well known and where at least 65,000 people were murdered. Some put the estimate at 85,000. Uh, and that's important. Is this likely going to be one of the last Nazi war crime trials? Well, obviously. I mean, these people, the only reason there are trials today is because, first of all, because of the extension of life expectancy. People are living longer today, and most of the people perpetrated these crimes are living in Germany and Austria, where there's a high level of medical services, and uh, they reach this age, and they're healthy enough. In other words, only the ones who are healthy enough to stand trial actually are put on trial. And uh, as we've seen in other cases, there have been five cases already that have been tried since Germany changed its prosecution policy very dramatically and made it easier to bring these people to justice. So there are such people, and there's at least, I think it's 14 or 16 investigations going on right now about additional people, including, for example, a person who, who participated in the massacre at Babi Yar, uh, the largest massacre of uh, Jews uh, during the Holocaust in, in the course of 36 hours, 33,771 people were murdered in Kiev. With the passage of time, can these trials be meet the standard of justice that you would want? I'm, I, I'm satisfied with the standard of justice. Uh, the problem in Germany was, for many years, the standard was so high that it was almost impossible to bring Nazi perpetrators to justice. I'll explain. For several decades, the, in order to prosecute a Nazi war criminal in the Federal Republic in, in Germany, West Germany, you had to prove that that person had committed a specific crime against a specific victim whose name was known and was motivated by racial hatred. That's almost impossible to prove. And that's precisely what happened. In other words, that, that standard was instituted to limit the number of people who could be brought to justice. And I think as uh, Judge Anne Maya Goring, in the last case that came to court uh, in Hamburg, of Bruno Day, who was also at Stuttgart, she very uh, convincingly explained that the Holocaust could never have reached the scope that it was that you know, that took place, mm -hmm. if not for these people who fulfilled these roles. They're not Himmler, they're not Hitler. But you don't have to be at that level to be a accomplice to this terrible crime. Thank you for taking our call this morning and for speaking to us. Ephraim Zurov, director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center's Israel office.
Gambling with Lives, a charity set up by families bereaved by gambling-related suicides, is starting an education programme in schools in the north to try and prevent gambling causing harm to young people. Pete and Sadie Kyo from Enniskillen in County Fermanagh are among the founding members. Their son Lewis died by suicide at the age of just 34 after a struggle with gambling addiction that left him tens of thousands of pounds in debt. Last night Pete spoke with our reporter Moira Hannan. Well, Lewis died in 2013 as a result of his gambling addiction and uh, really the first time we were aware of it was when we received his note that said uh, addiction is cruel, I need some peace. We had no idea that he had such a, a torture going on in his life and he was obviously so embarrassed by it and he couldn't bring himself to tell us about it and uh, I, I actually, I, I recall when I heard about it, I actually fell up the stairs going up because my wife was up, was up in the bedroom I, I, I couldn't walk. The education programme that has been produced by uh, Gambling With Lives, we have huge hopes that it will bring an awareness to young people through the medium of their school, that we will make it free to all the schools in Northern Ireland, and hopefully in the Republic of Ireland in the months and years to come, that they will have a real, much better understanding of this lethal thing that is gambling addiction. That's Pete and Sadie Kyo with our reporter Moira Hannan. James Grimes is Head of Education at Gambling With Lives charity. He's with us now. Uh, James Grimes, good morning. You're welcome to Morning Ireland. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your own experience of gambling. So I had a 12-year gambling addiction and I started gambling as a child at the age of 15 and I, I, I say that I was a child of the Ray Winston era and, and what I mean by that is from about 2006-2007 onwards the floodgates of gambling advertising and the normalisation were just open and every time you watch football, every time you watch sport you were told to gamble and I was a child of that generation and it, it very quickly escalated for me. I, I speak with Pete and Sadie about Lewis and the similarities are, are scary and that could have easily been me. It took it took me to the brink and I don't feel like I have an addictive personality. I've never had an addiction to anything else. I, I believe that the normalisation and the addictiveness of the products are what caused my addiction. How much were you gambling? What were you gambling on and, and how much did it take over your life? So... F- quite common really at the start it was just a small casual football bets believing the adverts when it said it matters more when there's money on it but the minute i had access to the fixed odds betting terminals so the roulette machines in the the high street bookies and online gambling especially my my brain was screaming out to me to gamble at all hours of the day and when i had the availability and the access to do that you know it, it it's probably the wrong thing to say but it felt that's what I should be doing and I it completely consumed it it destroyed my education I lost all career prospects I lost relationships and it, it did it take it took me to the brink I, I got to a, a, a fork in the road and recovering gamblers say this a lot that they get to a place where they can't imagine a life with gambling anymore and they can't imagine a life without it and I, and I don't take it for granted that I could have easily been Lewis and that could have easily been my mum and dad talking on the radio this morning how did you stop it come from a really low moment i lost all the money i had in the world again on my lunch break at work i lost two thousand pounds which is not a significant amount but it wasn't about the money it was the fact that i couldn't control myself i couldn't stop using these products and i was constantly incentivized to use them and i i got to that 
that fork in the road and, and something clicked in me I, I took inspiration from a story by to, uh, about tony o'reilly the irish postman um who stole money from the post office uh, and currently now is a counselor and that that was the first time i thought i'm not the only gambling addict in the world this is happening to a lot of people there is hope there is help there is life after gambling and it was a case of being honest with myself and being honest with other people and actually the best way that i've maintained my recovery is learning about what the gambling industry does and i've convinced myself they don't deserve another penny of my money and another ounce of my time what is this program, James, and, and what do you want it to do? The program is, a, is an independent, peer-reviewed education program for 14 to 16-year-olds, and we like to think it's quite unique because what we do, we talk about those commercial determinants of harm, which are the products in causing addiction and the normalisation process. And we're not going into schools and telling children not to gamble because, one, they wouldn't listen, um, <laughs> and two, I don't think that's the approach that would work anyway. So we're going in there to tell them the full picture, the full information. Parents like Lewis, uh, parents like Pete and Sadie and the many other families bereaved by gambling suicide, they believe strongly that a lack of information and a lack of education killed their children. So, so we, it is our... It's our duty to go and tell as many people as possible about how these products work, the truth behind the marketing practices, and show a positive sign of help, support, and treatment. Um, and that's what we'll be doing at schools with a pilot first, but eventually we'll consider a range of delivery options. And what about this side of the border? Definitely. Uh, the, the gambling harm does not discriminate. Young people across the continent are exposed to gambling advertising, and these products they cross borders so we will start by our pilot in the north and most definitely if there's people out there listening that want your children and want schools and teachers to be delivering this please do get in touch uh, and we'll, we'll definitely be looking into it in the future james thanks for speaking to us that's james grimes head of education at the gambling with lives charity An L.A. judge has suspended Britney Spears' father, Jamie Spears, as conservator or guardian of her $60 million estate, saying it's in the singer's best interest to remove her father from the legal agreement. For more than a decade, her father has had court-approved control over her life and fortune. The decision is a significant victory for the singer, who had claimed she'd been medicated against her will and denied the right to have children. After the ruling, Britney Spears' lawyer, Matthew Rosengart, said the Kafkaesque nightmare orchestrated by her father Jamie was now over. I'm so pleased and proud to say Jamie Spears is no longer a conservator. <laughs> Jamie Spears has been suspended and he will be formally removed shortly. Outside the courtroom after 13 years then, and uh, let's go to California to the Business Post US correspondent Marianne McKeown. And Marianne, 13 years long, but is it over? Does this mean that Britney Spears is free of this court control, that she is able to make her own decisions? 
No, it doesn't, Mary, and good morning to you. Um, but I was down at the court today and outside the court, and it was the, the, the most, I mean, there were just hundreds and hundreds. It was a sea of pink Britney supporters and her, her army, as they call themselves, handing out pink roses. This sort of euphoric festival almost atmosphere. But it, it, the, the, the celebrations may be premature, and there are so many questions that need to be answered about this whole conservatorship. Um, so what, she goes back to court on the 15th of November and then they will go back again in December. Now her father, Jamie Spears, having refused for, for 13 years to give up uh, the conservatorship over her business and personal life for quite a long time, and then he held on to the business aspect, uh, had his lawyer today in court say that he now wants to end it immediately. He wants it to be over. However, Britney Spears' new lawyer, Matthew Rosengart, who spoke outside the court to the fans afterwards, um, had had argued in court that no, that he wants um, Jamie Spears' handling of her estate to be investigated. And he says that if he's allowed to just terminate the the conservatorship immediately, then they won't be able to access some of the documents and they won't be able to speak to him in, in the detail that they want. So he's, he's asked the judge to allow him to be still on the docket as it, as it is for the time being uh, until the 15th of November, by which time they would believe they will have enough uh, time to go through exactly what he was doing over the past 13 years with her finance. There are all kinds of implications. Uh, one example is uh, Britney Spears' father hired a lawyer, ironically, or not named Andrew Wallet, who was paid about half a million dollars a year uh, for what is not clear, but out of Britney Spears' estate until 2019, she was working flat out. The, it, the bizarre thing about this conservatorship is that it was deemed that she was well enough um, mentally and physically to work non-stop. She did a, a really grueling stint in Vegas for months and months and months. She could work, she could train her dancers and her backup singers, she could do all this but she wasn't able to take care of herself. She wasn't allowed to drive a car she wasn't even allowed to have an iPhone for, for a long time and most sinister I think she was forcibly fitted with an IUD birth control device and wasn't allowed to have it removed so that she couldn't become pregnant and couldn't have any more children. I mean, the details of, of the, the, the control that was exercised over her for the past 13 years, the loss of dignity and autonomy are really, really shocking. And I think, you know, there are about a million people in America who are under these conservatorships. Most of them have uh, very advanced dementia or they have Alzheimer's, they're totally unable to take care of themselves. But the bizarre paradox with Britney Spears was on the one hand, she was able to work around the clock and generate millions and millions of dollars for the, the business that she is. But on the other hand, she wasn't even allowed to decide what she could, mm. what colour she could paint her so, kitchen. Marion, her, her autonomy has been restored but in the meantime, until this investigation takes place, does she have power or control over that multi-million dollar estate? No, no, she doesn't. Uh, and and the control over the estate has been handed on now to an accountant, uh, Mark Zabel, a, a certified uh, public accountant. So her father has relinquished. He, he has been suspended. Somebody else has come in to take his place. She still has her... Um, she uh, In about 2019, the conservatorship was divided in two. So uh, a caretaker called Jodie Montgomery has been taking care of the personal aspects of her life, uh, 
although she there's a security team that makes sure she takes the medications that have been prescribed for her she claims against her wishes uh, and and so it, it, she still has that um conservatorship that has control over her personal life. She also now has a new person who's replacing her father, as I said, a, a certified public accountant uh, who will continue to do so until November. Now, the hope is, it, you know, it, another astonishing thing is she had a lawyer called Sam Ingham who was appointed by the court years and years ago. She was never allowed to have her own lawyer and he never told her she could petition to have this conservatorship ended. Uh, so it just seems that, as I said, there are so many legal legal questions that this raises but for the time being she still doesn't have control of her estate okay. the hope it seems to be that she will be able to get control back uh, in, on the 15th of November of at least the, the, the financial aspect and then there will be a decision made about Jodie Montgomery whether she'll continue on in a personal capacity and then there'll be another hearing in December to determine there are about a million dollars worth of legal so, fees so outstanding several, to her father's lawyers. Several steps along the way Mario. Oh, yeah. In the meantime yeah. of course we've had the documentaries, we've had the Free Britney movement and we also have um, now Instagram posts Posts, I think, reacting to what's happened from Brittany and from her fiancé. What have they been saying? Well, I think that they just seem to be obviously very thrilled. She she was photographed or she posted an, an Instagram photograph of herself in a plane or what could be a simulated plane uh, saying she was on cloud nine. And I, I think you can imagine, like, as I say, after 13 years, she was virtually under house arrest, but but also forced to take medication, you know, in a way that, that it, it was so draconian and, and bizarre in, in so many ways. And the lack of court oversight, I think, is really disturbing. But I think for, for today, it was a good day for her. Uh, her father uh, is no longer going to be who has well-publicized addictions with gambling and alcoholism and, and has, you know, been in trouble with the law. He seemed like the last person who had put in charge of a multi-million pound business. Uh, and, and, and in fact, there are questions raised as to, she has sold so many millions and millions of records. Her estate is put at $60 million. It seems quite low for somebody who has worked as hard as she has, who has produced as many albums as she has. You would imagine that she should be worth considerably more, but apparently her new lawyer, uh, Matthew Rosengard, is, is going claims that he's going to get to the bottom of all of this yeah. and see exactly the degree to so, which he believes her estate was mismanaged. Whether in fact rounds, it was. Several rounds, Marianne McKillen. Oh, many, many more. Come. And thank you very much for, for joining us to tell us the story from California this morning. Now, the Shanachi, the storyteller, held a special position in traditional Irish society. The Shanachi's stories and songs, not just entertaining people, but remembering and passing on the folk memory of the community. Well, for this month of October, and for the price of a local phone call, anyone can pick up a phone and literally... Dial a Shanachi. And to tell us more about this initiative, let's talk to Claire Artist and the producer of Dial a Shanachi, John Lillis. Good morning to you. Good morning. This sounds ap- absolutely fantastic. Tell me more about dialing a Shanachi. So the Dial a Shanachi project originally started in 1988 with the Claire Arts Officer at the time, Kay Sheehy. And she developed the project back then. She had three storytellers uh, recorded and then their recordings were played back to the public via the telephone. And the three Shanachies there were Francie Kennelly, Junior Crehan and Eddie Lenehan. 
So uh, about a year and a half ago, I started working on this project as a commission with Glore and the Clare Arts Office and funded by Creative Ireland and the Arts Council. And I came on board as a producer and a curator. And a year and a half later, we're finally ready to launch the, 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 the storytelling line this morning. So we're really excited about that. OK, well, uh, before we go any further, let's let's have a listen to what happens if you ring 065-6723-000. So if you ring that, you're presented with a number of options. One of them is option four, which is Ian Lynch, singer and songwriter from Dublin. And here's what you'll hear from Ian if you press option four when you dial a Shanachy. Well, there was pig's heads, goldfish, mockingbirds and ostriches, ice cream, cold cream, vaseline and sandwiches, bluefish, greenfish, fish hooks and partridges. There was fish balls, snowballs, cannonballs and cartridges. Cannonballs and cartridges. That was Ian Link, uh, Ian Lynch, a member of the band Lancome, and he's option four from Dial a Shanachy. And that extract was reciting from some of the rolling prose of roguery and nonsense, written by Jimmy Armstrong and originally collected by the Shanachy Eddie Lennon. So for for this, if you like, iteration of Dial a Shanachy, John Lillis, you've had new artists reimagine uh, those uh, recordings that were collected. Then is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So when I came on board the project, part of my role in it was to curate, I suppose, new contemporary voices and people that I thought might make interesting contributions to the project. So some of the people I was already aware of and knew them and other people I was just um, big fans of their work. And I was really trying to find people who I thought their work already represented something to do with the Shanachy tradition in the first place. And Ian Lynch has a, an amazing radio show called Fire Draw Near. That was a big inspiration, what he was doing with his radio show. So it was just really to find, I think, people who would do the project justice. And uh, yeah, we were blown away by the submissions that we got from all six artists. Yeah, I can imagine you might find people ringing back and ringing back and ringing back. I mean, it, it's fascinating, the Shanachy, because... You know, in a in a society where a lot of people were very poor, where there wouldn't have been very high le- levels of literacy, it wasn't just about somebody telling a story in a corner. Uh, it wasn't just about somebody singing a song. Th- these people played a vital uh, role in the community, didn't they, the Shanachy? Absolutely. And that's, I suppose, one of the things that came up for me when I was researching this project, I've been working with Eddie Lenehan for a good couple of years and Eddie was an invaluable asset, I suppose, in the research for this project. And just really getting a firm idea as to what role did the Shanachie fill in Irish society. So one of the things that we would have discussed with Eddie was the fact that we look at a Shanachie just simply as a storyteller. But these are... They're historians, they're geographers, they're psychologists, they're teachers, and more so than anything, they're oral custodians of um, the storytelling tradition in Ireland. So a lot of these stories, they relate to landscape, um, they they relate to, you know, the bigger things in life, I suppose, like life and death and mourning, Um, and also just to to entertainment, to fun, to, to... humor there's quite a lot of humor that are in the stories as well 
And uh, yeah, it's been a really interesting project, just learning about the Shanachie and I suppose how they kind of, how they propped up our society, yeah. you know, going back a couple of hundred years and they really were a really strong uh, role in society along with being entertainers as well. Yeah, sure, they were radio and television and mobile phones all combined in one person. It really does sound like a fascinating... You got it. <laughs> it really does sound like a fascinating project. The best of luck with it. Uh, and that's John Lillis, uh, curator and producer of Dial Ashanaki. And just to remind you of the number again, 065 zero for the cost of a local call. And that continues for the month of October. <laughs> You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.